we're sending money out of Syracuse and not just for 30 years, for the rest of their life. But when you are told that there's a promise that your generation will be better than the previous generation, and we're seeing that the statistics tells us that that's not the case, it's evidently clear that it only is going to change if we are going to be the ones who fight for our future. So we want to put in context because it's not just a class issue, it's a race issue. We're telling black and brown people and poor people, you don't matter. Welcome to Afro Futures. You are here today with your favorite host, Yusuf Abdul-Qadir. And I've got a special treat for you because one of the folks that I've had a chance to work with in my previous life and a person who I have a tremendous amount of respect for and someone who I just have seen to be a voice, a clarion voice of clarity and and someone who has helped to, in many respects, um, amplify my own voice and trying to identify how to phrase and characterize and articulate some of the issues that affect our communities um, is is a good, good, good organizer, great leader, brilliant mind, Joanza. And Joanza organizes with Vocal New York, and I'm super happy to have you here on the Afro Futures podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much, Yusuf. I deeply appreciate having this space to really to really have a conversation just about the fundamental, multidimensional realities that we're all dealing with. I just think you know, there's been so much shock and awe coming from the right wing, from white supremacy, from these vehement responses, um, you know, backlashes, we call them, um, from the right wing, from white supremacy. Whenever, you know, Black people are sort of declaring our dignity, our sovereignty in our lives, our ability to be self-determined, and that's having unimaginable effects, um, creating all manner of crises um, that I really want us to be able to, to explore today when we think about, you know, Afro futures, Black futures, building those Black futures. That's something I'm very much interested in. Well, I mean, you, you I, it's, it's almost as if you're like literally sitting in my head and kind of interviewing yourself because you've exactly set up the way that I want to frame and phrase this conversation. Because in 2020, there was this, and I promised in earlier episodes of this podcast, and so for listeners, please forgive me, but I promise I wouldn't say this word again, but this quote-unquote racial reckoning um, of 2020, wherein there was this global movement of people who were like, we're not doing this any- anymore. This is a- an abomination. And almost as quickly as that you know, happened, the backlash came resoundingly responding right after. And to the point where the actual conversation isn't even about imploring or exploring rather the ways that the system has been designed to facilitate for these outcomes and how do we reorient ourselves out of a white supremacist paradigm, but that's really focused on we can't teach history, right? Like we can't actually teach the history because if you can't teach the history, then you can't undo it. Um, and so you, 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 you set this up perfectly because I think it's, I think it's important for people to, to, to see what is happening and to understand it. So I, I want to, I want to take a moment to, before we get into the the nitty gritty, just get to know you first, because uh, I've learned in my life and with every person that I've had the opportunity and honor of interviewing on this podcast, that we come to this work not just because it pays a check or because it's something that is aggrandizing, but also because of the intimate ways that our lives have been affected, that have you know mobilized and in some respects radicalized us to the to, to action. And I, I would just be interested in what what is your personal journey? What got you from I think Texas to to Vocal New York, and and what has that journey been like for you? And how has that really helped to develop and orient your understanding and view of these issues? But but also give you the the confidence to stand on 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 what you advocate so really forcefully and righteously for. You know, I really appreciate that question, and that's right. Um, I'm a black a black brown skinned guy, kid, a gay person who grew up working class, sometimes lower class or like low income, I should say, and sometimes sort of stably middle class from Beaumont, Texas, which is a town that's 80 miles southeast of Houston. You know, I think most notably known for Spindletop, one of the first massive oil reserves um, that, you know, was stolen from the sort of ancestral land of the Native Americans um, in, in that part of Texas on the southeast coast side. So it's near the Gulf of Mexico, um, very close to um, Louisiana, the border. And 
uh, maybe like a 30 minute drive from Lake Charles, Louisiana is where I'm from. So um, I think, you know, as a black gay person, um, you know, struggling in this country to find like security and safety, we as black people in particular, or people of African descent living in these yet to be United, United States, mm. we, we, we sit at a perfect nexus of unimaginable violence. You know, one of the things that I often talk about is that we live in this society in this global paradigm where this forces the forces of domination who like which is sort of today i would call the capitalist class and i'm talking about individuals i'm talking about organizations i'm talking about institutions or formations i'm talking about jeff bezos i'm talking about goldman sachs i'm talking about massive multinational corporations and the the people that run them and that benefit from their exploitation of humanity like they are interested in maintaining an and power and domination over folks so that they can maintain that power. And I mean, I think the way that that happens, I think in a capitalist system and a capitalist way of understanding things, because I have to be crystal clear, I am anti-capitalist. And I think that all of us are called to be anti-capitalist because capitalism is anti-human fundamentally by its very nature, by its very structures, every structure that comes out of it produces ultimately the same crisis, which Kwame Torre taught us so frequently that there's only two economic eventualities. Either we're going to share the wealth or some of us are going to hoard the wealth. And when that happens, we automatically create suffering. So to my point, I'm trying to say that white supremacy is used as a means of justification for an economic system, an ideological modality that argues that some work is less valuable than other work. Therefore, some people and their contributions are lesser valuable. So it's okay that they are being exploited economically. So it's much easier to suggest that this is a viable means of organizing one's economy and therefore our society if there are some people who are demonized or dehumanized or made to rendered animal. And I think that's where we get this ideology of white supremacy. This suggestion that some people are better than other people, which is intimately connected to the sense of maintaining power and using narrative, using stories, using ideas um, to confuse the masses. So if the capitalist class needs validation, they produce these ideas like white supremacy and white supremacy has to produce an anti-Black culture. And that produces a culture generally of violence that has unimaginable implications that is hundreds of years old. And that leads to so many of the problems that we're experiencing today. So whenever Black activists, in particular Black feminists, um, modalities of analysis are really critical and essential, I think, to being able to understand the full scope of what is happening to people of African descent all around the world, but also human humanity in general. Um, so that's a long-winded way of me saying that I realized this in my Black body in Texas in 2013 when I was diagnosed with HIV. And the reason that I realized that is because I was a young person, recently graduated from undergrad in Texas, a school called Schreiner University. I probably should not have went there in retrospect, <laughs> but I graduated with unimaginable debt. And my intention was to apply to law school or to graduate school to continue education, but then I wasn't able to uh, access my transcripts, which is a Noah thing that happens to a lot of poor and working class people that are trying to um, get a higher education in this country at this period. I was dealing with this sudden sense of massive debt, uh, and then I was diagnosed with HIV and suddenly realized as a person that was uninsured that I needed healthcare and I didn't have the money to access healthcare. And then um, if you remember that the Affordable Care Act um, under Obama, um, which is not the best bill, I think we need something far, far better. Um, but um, one of the sort of compromises was that states were, were allowed to decide if they were going to expand Medicaid or not, which is a racial justice, a class justice, a gender justice, et cetera issue. And of course, Texas being a deep red state, um, did not expand Medicaid. Therefore, I was not eligible for Medicaid and I was uninsured and I was living with uh, albeit manageable, but chronic illness that required consistent and comprehensive um, health care. And I suddenly realized how incredibly insufficient the healthcare system had been. And then I started to learn a bit about public health. And I learned that Ronald Reagan, one of the worst people to ever grace the face of the earth, in my opinion, didn't mention the word AIDS in public 
until over 23,000 people in the United States had died from AIDS-related complications. So that meant that 23, you know, 30 years later, here I am um, after that period of Ronald Reagan contracting HIV whenever the fact is HIV can be contained because of the hyper-effective medications that exist, which I should add only exist because of organizing. So to, to move us along in a story, all of these things are happening to me and I'm experiencing them in my body, in my life, in my own community in Beaumont, Texas, while simultaneously Black people are under psychic attack. This is at a zenith of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, this is uh, around the period when George Zimmerman, after the murdering Trayvon Martin, was exonerated. And, you know, we all experienced Trayvon Martin being on trial, even though he was the one who was murdered. And it just, it, and of course, there were so many back-to-back, -back, I feel like, psychic assaults that were severely injuring us, but also radicalizing so many of us, um, that I think really led to um, the sort of zenith that we saw in 2020 with the uprisings um, related to defund the police, which is connected intimately to Black Lives Matter and to this reality of a racist, classist United States. So long story short, I, I, I had a lot of um, challenges in that period in 2013. This is around January, February, March. And I had one friend in New York who I was sort of confiding in because honestly, to be totally clear, and I think it's a very pressing thing to name, is I, I, I started to develop, I think, suicidal ideations mm. in that period. I just felt like everything was so gargantuan, so big, and that I was somehow doomed. And um, so I confided in a friend about some of those um, facts, and that friend lived in the Bronx. And essentially said, hey, you know what? Come visit me in New York. Take two weeks off. You have like basically a free vacation. Um, just get here. I can house you and feed you for those couple of weeks. So I came here. I was a tourist for a week, but because I was in Bedford Park in the Bronx, um, just near um, Lehman College, a much more dense area of the city, a very black and brown community, I should name. Like I wasn't visiting on 42nd Street. I was visiting in Deep Bronx, which is, I think, really um, important to my sort of understanding and introduction to the city of New York beyond movies, beyond tourist attractions. Um, I got to see the sort of ebb and flow of what it meant to be a New Yorker. And in that very small period, using the subway, et cetera. And um, after that first week of being here, I, I wondered how could I stay? And then I discovered that New York state was one of the states, a blue state that had expanded Medicaid eligibility. So if I were a resident of New York city or New York state, I would be eligible for state Medicaid, which at the time was something I really, really needed. Mm -hmm. um, so I negotiated a housing plan do in with with that friend and i stayed and then how i find vocal new york and this is important and i, and I want to say they the organizers at the time found me mm. is that friend essentially reneged a bit on their agreement and or our agreement and um asked me to leave uh, a full two months ahead of the scheduled time and because I had started medication for my HIV treatment, because I, uh, you know, had access to a comprehensive health care in the city of New York um, that was unparalleled compared to what I was experiencing in Texas just a few months before that, um, I, I, I refused to leave the city because I thought that my life was in danger and the quality of my life. So I, I ended up in a shelter. And Vocal New York does outreach in shelters. And mind you, there, it's almost as if it were magic. I was in this shelter and I knew that I had ended up experiencing homelessness in New York City because number one, shit happens in our lives. Crisis happens. There are some things we cannot control and we have to be resilient and we have always been as black people for hundreds of years and continue pushing on. However, when I got to the shelter, suddenly I realized that everyone there was black and brown. You know, and today I know that 87% of all single adults living in New York City shelters are black or brown identified, you know, indicating a massive disproportionate impact of homelessness amid black folks in New York City. And while I'm in the shelter, I'm also reading a lot of Angela Davis at the time. I'm reading 1984 by George Orwell. So I'm thinking a lot about the state, the capital S state. I'm thinking a lot about capitalism, about um, socialism, about um, the sort of power of stories, the power of narratives, the power of ideological frameworks, and about Black feminist thought. 
um, and and really becoming um, aware and using um, sort of applying an intersectional sort of black feminist analysis to my own life and my lived experience and what was around me, what was happening around me. I started to ask people in that shelter, well, I understand that you're in a shelter because shit happens. I, I ended up here too. However, why are you still in the shelter? And if you have a housing voucher, why aren't you being housed? And, and then I started to fundamentally realize it, a light bulb went off and it clicked that homelessness is as racist as police violence, if not more so. And that stuffing black people, beautiful, dignified human beings into these warehouses, which in the city of New York, we have the right to shelter. And that's a privilege that most of the country does not have. Uh, and still it is missed it wasn't what people were in the streets about at the time. They weren't in the streets about the fact that, you know, we had 70 plus thousand people across New York State experiencing homelessness, the vast majority of whom are Black. They were in the streets because of anti-crime units that our new mayor, Eric Adams, wants to bring back to the city of New York and to the practices of the NYPD. So, um, you know, as I'm, as I'm realizing this, I just felt this desire to do something. I just felt so much internal rage um, not just for my own experience of homelessness, but very much connected to it. But for the fact that it was as if it was this invisible problem and that if people did see homelessness in their imagination, in their minds, uh, homelessness was a fixed reality of civilization, that it's um, somehow an individual fault, an individual responsibility <laughs> to make sure that housing is accessible, yet we claim that housing is a human right. And while I'm thinking all of this, um, you know, there's three knocks on my, my shelter door. I was living in a shelter on 155th and St. Nicholas in Harlem. And Elizabeth Owens, who passed away in 2020, um, an organizer of Vocal New York, uh, opened, I opened my door and she said, hey, my name's Elizabeth Owens. I work at Vocal New York. We organize to end AIDS, homelessness, mass incarceration, the drug war. And um, we do that by organizing directly impacted people. Do you want to sign my clipboard? Do you want to come to a meeting? And honestly, I, I all, of, all of a sudden, it felt like everything that had led me to that room, to be in Harlem, confused about the people on the streets, thinking, understanding Harlem only as a myth from my childhood about, well, what, where do Black people live in this country? Where does Black culture come from? And I think a lot about Harlem in that sense, because it, it's true. And it wasn't the Harlem that I expected when I was there. Mm -hmm. Even though I was in a shelter, uh, the streets looked very different. It, they were a lot less colorful than I anticipated. And that was alarming to me, also simultaneously politicizing me. And, and but, but truly, it felt like all of the, the, the crises, all of the moments, all of the stories of my life and the stories of my family so intimately impacted by the drug war, et cetera. It, it just felt like I was led there. And for me as a um, non-white supremacist, the theology applying Christian, I, I felt that God had led me to that space that somehow using all of this struggle, all of this contention, this, this, this psychic sludge to help craft me into something beautiful, a machine, a human being that's able to love and that has built a critical lens of analysis and awareness that is rooted in love, care, and compassion. And I feel a fierce fire inside of me to, to respond and not as a savior, but as someone to remind people that we have to light these flames. And, that, and that's how I ultimately ended up becoming an organizer. I mean, there's a lot more in between there because I joined Vocal New York as a member and I didn't start working there until 2015. Um, and this was in 2013 when I joined. Um, but that's, that's, that's been my story here. And the last thing I'll say before we move on, Yusuf, is that um, I also have a, a unique affection for the city and the state of New York. Because at my most vulnerable period in my life, New York took care of me. Mm. The people in New York took care of me. People in the Bronx, people in Harlem, people in Brooklyn. And... And I, I feel this debt of gratitude and, and care. And I want to take care of the people and the, the communities that took care of me, some of whom had no idea what I was going through. Wow. I mean, that's a lot. And, I, and I, first, I want to just say as a person who's from the Bronx, I appreciate the care with which you've given us in this part of your life that you shared. It, it is, it's always amazing to me how 
you know, we talk about New York City and we really mean specific neighborhoods when people generally speak about it. Um, but growing up in the Bronx and living in the Bronx has really shaped my worldview in many in many of the ways that you talked about. I mean, my mom worked at the first nursing home in, in New York State, probably one of the first in the country that treated people with HIV AIDS, right? So this yep. is, to me, this is a kind of full circle uh, of, a, of a conversation. But I talk a lot about me. I, I will try to do better at not doing that this podcast because you, you raised some really intriguing points that I think are worthy of kind of continued inquiry. You know, it, it is, it's fascinating how there is the lack of question. And even in, in the kind of way that we are all pathologized and really acculturated to understand poverty or people being unhoused um, is this sense of personal choice that if people just made better decisions, then they wouldn't be unemployed or wouldn't be homeless or would have more money in their bank account, completely disregarding the fact that there are entire systems that are designed and oriented and set up and situated to do the very thing that we see this outcome being. And in this context, um, making sure that people are, as famously said by Nixon domestic policy advisor, John Ehrlichman, vilified day in and day out. And I want to switch to the drug war because I think it's a quite fitting um, transition to broader conversations that I'd like to have with you here today because it's, if anyone's listened to the previous episode, I was speaking with Errol Smallwood, um, who's part of a campaign called 13th Forward, which tries to look at the 13th Amendment exemption to the U.S. Constitution. And we had a really good conversation about the 13th Amendment and just what work is happening in New York to try to upend that particular inequity. Um, but it also is worthy of mentioning that one of the tools that have been used to, to ensure that there is a kind of uh, maintenance of bondage, right? Like, you know, New York, upstate New York cities, and I'm in Syracuse, and there's several prison towns around us whose entire economy is situated in the prison industrial complex. I mean, if, if there is a prison industrial complex, it is alive and well in upstate New York. Um, but that prison industrial complex exists in many ways because of the way that black and brown folks have been isolated, right, and forced into high concentration poverties and hyper-segregated communities and schools, um, how black and brown communities have been targeted because of over-policing, and the way that the drug war especially has both devastated communities by taking people and and and, and losing life and... and as opposed to responding with a public health approach, responding with the but, the foot of the boot of, of the criminal legal system um, and devastating lives and effectively <laughs> funneling black and brown for many years men, but increasingly women, um, throughout the prisons across upstate New York and across the state um, for possession or sale or distribution or use or the allegation of any of those of, of drugs, especially marijuana. And and we, I first met you through working on marijuana justice. And, you know, it was an interesting, and I don't actually, I've never shared this outside of now, but I'll share it now. It was an interesting position for me to be in uh, because I am Muslim and the Muslim community is not very fond of drugs. <laughs> Though people who are Muslim do drugs, I will tell you that it, drug use and abuse is not exclusive to any particular demographic or community. Everyone does it and everyone has struggles to the extent that they may have struggles with it. But the, I was sitting on the board of the Islamic Society of Central New York. So one doesn't expect a... Um, treasurer of a religious institution <laughs> to be advocating for marijuana <laughs> legalization. Um, and it was a very interesting position to be in because from a position of analysis, to your point, I have I saw my life, what, what the drug war was, and it was purely unjust. I mean, purely. Mm -hmm. And if we are, as Muslims, called to stand firmly for justice, then we must stand firmly for marijuana justice because it is completely unjust the way that Marijuana and really, quite frankly, other drug enforcement mechanisms are used to institute social stratification uh, of black and brown communities and, and really keep black and brown communities in those stratified positions. And so we met at a time where 
I was trying to find the words to be able to articulate both the need for marijuana justice, the need for a reparatory framework with which to legalize marijuana. And, you know, I'd seen you at rallies and organizing activities on a host of issues, but especially listening to how you talked about this issue. And so uh, I want to start with what the marijuana justice campaign in New York was about, why it's different than anything else across the country and and what brought you to it specifically. Yeah. Um, first of all, thank you so much for even, you know, wanting to explore the drug war because I think it's one of the one of the I, lesser understood elements, essential core, I'd argue, components mm-hmm. of the mass incarceration crisis that we have happening in the United States. And this sort of story about who Black people are, who people that use drugs are, and why our communities are the way that they are so much about what is happening in most Black communities that I'm aware of across not just New York State, but across the United States, uh, is, is this idea that so many neoliberals like our new mayor, Eric Adams in New York City, that they are operating from this phantom this framework of like the crack era quote unquote the the violence and and the issues in communities that um, the drug war supposedly helped to quell albeit through unimaginable means of violence um whenever the real problem was never crack cocaine in the first place Mm -hmm. the real problem was always the policies around people engaging in what they want to engage in and not having the kind of caring loving and uh, evidence-based infrastructure to respond to people that develop uh, substance use disorders or, for that matter, to avoid the more core and the bigger fundamental question about austerity, um, the differences between neoliberalism and progressivism, conservatism, and the decades disinvestment in communities um, and, and the ways in which prohibition has is in lockstep, it's in tandem with anti-Black ideas, with white supremacist tropes, um, with xenophobic attitudes. Um, and, and that's the very much, that's the history of drug policy in this country. That is a documented fact, but I, I can't go into all of the details because it is as old as the country itself. It's problematic drug ideologies, which was never about the drugs, never about public health, always about domination, about money, about what communities are going to have what jobs, what people are going to be considered actual Americans, and what are, you know, viable means to arrest, enslave, maim, kill, and destroy, annihilate um, Black people, in particular people that are um, offering dissent. So that was a long-winded way of also saying, when it comes to marijuana legalization um, and Start Smart New York, the coalition um, that was headed up by the Drug Policy Alliance, primarily Cassandra Federique, who is now the um, the national director of the Drug Policy Alliance, and also um, Melissa Moore, who is now the New York State director of the Drug Policy Alliance, which is an organization I deeply respect. And I think that is core and critical to um, you know those of us that are working to end mass incarceration, to dismantle the drug war, which is fundamentally racist and classist, just to be clear. Um, if, if it wasn't I, clear before, it should be now. <laughs> yeah. um, I... I, I um, I think the, the marijuana fight in New York State, which um, the passage of the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act, the MRTA, um, that bill, uh, the first version of it was introduced, I want to say, in 2013. And it wasn't until 2020 that we were able to pass the bill. So that gives people some a degree of um, understanding about like what kind of work had to go into um, the crafting and the passage of that bill. And there were some unique political circumstances that I do think helped um, push us over the finish line. But I think what's most important for us to take away from that isn't that, great, marijuana is legal now. We can smoke weed wherever we want to. We can start a business. And yeah, sure, some of it's going to go, some of the tax revenue generated is going to go back into hardest hit communities. That is core. That is critical. But really, we have to be able to hold the complexity that we have to be legislating, drafting, creating, and implementing public policy that at its very core is class conscious, is anti-racist, is gender expansive, that accounts for the nuances of all of our lives, 
of all of the actions or inactions of our institutions in this country. And we have to we have we have to respond in that way. And I think that the MRTA, um, you know, and the way that we argued for the way that Start Smart fought for it. Um, from the perspective of racial and economic justice in terms of restitution is a word I'd use over reparations mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. in this case and for particular reasons. Um, but uh, I-, I think that so much of the work that I would argue leftists, Black folks um, organizing for justice, economic justice in particular, racial justice, um, have done so much profound and effective work, sometimes that work that is immeasurable, that invisible work, that finally we're able to apply an anti-racist, uh, class-conscious, uh, restitution-oriented framing narrative to public policy that even establishment Democrats have to contend with. And, and I think that the MRTA and the legalization of, of marijuana in New York State, which I think is the best legalization bill um, that has been passed in the United States thus far, um, that, that was only possible because of all of the work, all of the stories that have been told, all of the organizing that people have done beyond the individual campaign. So I guess in short, what I'm saying is that marijuana legalization in the state of New York was uniquely different because we were responding to the ways in which so many states that legalize marijuana with some degree of social equity in mind that we learned from all of those mistakes and that we were able to tell a story at a particular time in New York state and in the political configuration of our state legislature that allowed for us to push for more progressive legislation. Uh, and, and, and I think that even that um, we are experiencing a backlash, but I think for my people, what I want people to understand the most is that the same way you think about marijuana, about alcohol, you should think, exactly the same way about all drugs that people consume when it comes to public policy and what people deserve, how they should be treated, and how they should be able to access their right to self-determination, even if that self-determination is to be high. Because one thing we have to remember is that we can use drugs for pleasure. We often talk about the chaos that arises from substance use disorders, and we often never talk about the, the people that are having a great time, the people that are using a substance and are in control of themselves. Uh, and, and, and the reason we don't do that is because the people that do do that, they are moneyed people, typically white people, and they have the resources and the infrastructure in their lives, typically privately, to, to, to remain healthy and, and to be able to, to control the sort of socially determined behaviors that we want to call like, oh, you know, in, in poorer communities, whenever people develop substance use disorders and then behaviors arise that, that, is, that are undesirable, like stealing, like violence in our streets, the, these are not the fault or, or, or the, the, the drug is not the, 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 the point of root. It's not the source of origin. The drug is simply a symptom. The chaotic drug use or the substance use disorder is a symptom of a bigger problem. Because really, if you talk to people because and you have to be in community with people that use drugs, um, but because there's so much stigma, uh, oftentimes people don't share that they use drugs with each other, um, which adds to the problem because we can't possibly begin to have an opinion about drug policy, about people that use drugs, if we don't understand our own drug use, if we don't know people that use drugs. It's, it's the, oh, I have that one Black friend, so therefore I know about Black people attitude. I saw this one person dealing with a substance use disorder, therefore I understand substance use disorders, therefore I understand crack cocaine, therefore I understand people that use this drug. And and and, and dismissing the sociopolitical, the cultural uh, consequences of so much of the ways in which Black artists, Black comedians, and comedians across all colors have made jokes about crack. When we think about Whitney Houston, when we think about these sort of characters that live in the American imagination about who uses drugs, so much of it is connected to entertainment, to sensationalism, and nothing to do with the dignified human beings who deserve our love, care, and respect. Um, and, and that seeps into public policy. And I feel like marijuana is an example of how we get a substance out of that framing. And that's a good thing, but to leave the framing 
that is rooted in an anti-Black racism and dehumanization intact for other drugs is part and parcel of the problem. And I think quintessentially a neoliberalist perspective. And by neoliberalism, I just want to be clear that I mean people that believe that they are progressive. However, they, not, they don't believe that there's anything fundamentally wrong with the fundamental structures of the American experiment in democracy. So there's nothing fundamentally wrong with a drug war because drugs should be illegal. So there's nothing fundamentally wrong with a drug schedule that has marijuana schedule in number one, even though states are legalizing it. And culturally, we all know that the scheduling of marijuana connected to, again to the Nixon administration is a hyper-political act, specifically embarked on to break up the radical black left and the anti-war left um, during a period of Vietnam. Um, and I, I, I guess, I guess what I'm really trying to, to, to indicate here is that I, I think it's a little faulty to, to say we should legalize marijuana. People should be free to use that drug and, and to make that case by disparaging people that use other substances as if, as if we've learned the lesson. And, and that, that is the most heartbreaking thing to me. Um, that I've found in the in the in the in the year or two since passage of that bill, because I feel like the story about about how we got to prohibition in the first place is not understood, and that that means there's more work to do. Um, but I also think that that means we have to hold each other accountable. So I'm here to just remind you that if you are confused about what I'm saying, I think you've got to understand harm reduction. You got to understand the history of the drug war, prohibition, and and there's this um this concept called the Iron Law of Prohibition that is really critical for people to understand if we want to reduce the possibilities for toxic drug supplies, which is driving the overdose crisis, not the drug, toxic drug supplies, and that is intimately connected to prohibition, to the criminalization of drug consumption and low-level drug sales. I mean, there's a lot there, right? And 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 we're we're getting close to time, but I, I do want to sit in two of these issues before going to the last topic and then closing. Um, you know, you you raise the decades of disinvestment, right? And I think that's important because as we consider the ways that the both scheduling and enforcement of marijuana, but also other drugs, the kind of narrative that has been oriented around these communities to both talk about them as and being impoverished because they're lazy, talking about communities in a sense of not worthy of having investment. You know, in fact, even in a conversation about the child tax credit uh, recently, there was a conversation from Senator Joe Manchin that, well, they're just going to buy drugs with it anyway, right? So all this, all this, all of these types of tropes haven't haven't disappeared. They're still very well much here, and they're used as tools to deny people dignity. Right. They use these tools to be able to determine who is worthy of investment and who isn't worthy of investment. Um, and then you have crises erupt because of these decades of disinvestment. And then what do you do? Let's double down on stupid. Let's do the thing that we know has been harming communities for generations and let's do it to a new degree. And I, I think that's, you know, I sit back and think, like, did we not learn the lesson from the crime law like did, did we not <laughs> learn I, I thought we just had an election about that conversation and as surely as we just had that conversation we're going right back to the same stance that we always go to because the racial reckoning wasn't real and, and no one actually wanted to take time to reckon with it and to your point about trying to understand the history of it it's actually now becoming illegal to teach those histories <laughs> so yeah. there is an enterprise that i think is directly correlated to not just wanting to unlearn and, and not teach how the system has been designed to facilitate these outcomes, but actually to to reinstitute them as if none of us were around when it happened in the first place. Um, just wanted to get your response quickly to that yeah. before moving to the... I think that's exactly right. A much clearer example of what I was trying to share about the drug war. And I think fundamentally though, Yusuf, the reality is that America an American political thought, and I mean all of us, is afflicted by an unimaginable cognitive dissonance, a collective 
confusion um, that is intentional that I think, and, and by in, in, I don't like to say they, I like to say who I'm talking about. I'm talking about the capitalists. I'm talking about white supremacists. I'm talking about people whose names we can find, whose names we can learn. Um, where I'm talking about organizations like Facebook, now Meta. I'm talking about the, the, the Amazon that are building infrastructure for our society as if we want a private company to be essential for the deliverance of essential goods and services for human life, that is a big no-no. And I think that's, a, again, why, why I argue that we have to be anti-capitalist and we have to also be anti-racist. And, and that, that is one of the things that I think is really critical for us to understand. And, um, but, but to your point about Joe Manchin, uh, the, obviously Joe Manchin is, is the face right now of the height of neoliberal violence that is afflicting um, um, Americans and people that live in this country. Um, you know, by the millions, um, you know, in his use of um, this suggestion that people would use um, this child tax credit to buy drugs um, was again a distraction. And then a reminder, as you were saying, Yusuf, that these fundamentally uh, unscientific, uh, racist ideas, these phantoms, these, these, these archetypes that are born of American violence, a, a uniquely American um, animus towards people that are African descent, brown people, queer people, people that are not um, Christians. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a justification that he used to deny millions of people, millions of children, economic support, critical economic support, in the middle of a global pandemic that is, Still I mean, I, I, don't, I don't really even have the language in this moment to explain what has happened to the world when it comes to COVID-19. And, 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 and then that people only accept that in the masses because they are, they, the interface that they're using to interact with the world to understand what is happening has the program that, yep, he's right. People are going to, you know, the well, welfare queen, you know, like the way that black women in particular, we didn't even talk about, but have been used as, 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 as the sort of scapegoat for why the state Democrats and Republicans will, will um, pass austerity budgets. Um, that, that, is only acceptable to people because people are operating from this racist ideas. And I mean, and, and if there's, if you need any concrete proof, you can think about the 70 million plus people that voted for a Donald Trump presidency a second term. Um, and that's a terrifying thing to me. And we didn't even talk about what I call the white supremacist insurrection on January 6th, 2021, and what that meant to the threat of democracy. And I, I used to, I'm starting to think we're going to have to have this conversation again to continue. Oh, no, we will. We will. I there's, mean, I, there's, 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 it, it, and especially because of the the last two points you raised, I mean, we we speak of we speak about January sixth here, um, and we talk about it in very clear and stark, specific terms. Not just as a threat to democracy, but really as a fight for what kind of a country are we? Are we a white supremacist country, or are we a country experimenting with a multiracial, pluralistic, democratic republic? Right, and the, and it's imperfect, and it has issues, and it has flaws, um, and it needs more radical shifts to get us to where we need to be to fulfill the promises that, you know, are espoused in its founding documents. But it is certainly um, a, a, a response to what happened and the, the, the political awakening and powering. I don't think it's accidental that you had the global uprisings that happened and the ascendancy of, of, of slow but still you know, black uh, empowerment happening to the point that we really shifted the election and then January 6th, because January 6th is always about not just, you know, take it's taking back our country, right? And, mm -hmm. and from whom, right? Taking back from the black folk, the brown folk, the indigenous folk, the Latinx folk, because they are not worthy of being counted for their vote. And that's, I wish we could have had that conversation and, and, and then pulled in freedom to vote because it, it is all together, but Joanza, I, I I think that you spit fire, and we want to have you back on this show because it is important for us to interrogate these issues um, and to give critical time to it in a moment where we are in crisis. Um, 
But I'll, I'll let you I'll let you close this out with with what with what thoughts you want to leave folks with because as much as I think it's important to have the analysis and I think you did a great job at helping to unpack a lot of these issues for folks. It's also important to not be in despair, right? So what what can we do and 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 what what are you doing now in in in, in your work because I've I've left the the uh, formalized I guess organizing world in the sense of it is not my profession currently, but I mm-hmm. I still do the work in many ways, this being one of them and others. And so I'm, I'm interested for the folks who are not um, as close to it as you are, what things do you want to leave them with here today? Yeah, sure. First of all, I want to say thank you for this space because I do believe that this these kinds of conversations are, are the seeds that we have to continue to plant. And even if no one listens, or even if only one person listens, um, that really matters. Um, so I value this kind of engagement. Um, because okay. oftentimes these conversations are going to be rendered silent by those who are interested in maintaining power that we've discussed this hour. Um, but um, a thing that I really want to say to my people, to Black folks, number one, Frederick Nietzsche is not going to work for us. This <laughs> nihilism, this hopelessness, it is toxic, it is deadly, and I think that it is bad for us. It does not help us to have this idea that whiteness is insurmountable, that the fundamental structures of this society cannot be radically transformed and or abolished. Um, and, I, I, and, I, and I hope that people hold that. And also when it comes to this question of abolition, it is very critical that we understand we cannot be abolitionists in thought alone and the abolitionist future that we're all trying to collectively define and to collectively build, because that's the only way it's possible, requires people who are healthy and well and able to engage in the radical imagination that Angela Davis has called us for, called us to, since 2003's um, prisons are obsolete, and even before that. Um, but it is critical that we that you understand that not all reformations are antithetical to abolition. Reforms are antithetical to abolition if those reforms expand the power and the scope of the carceral state. If they reduce the power and the scope of the carceral state, then they are on an abolitionist tract, if not abolitionist. And I think this is critical because so many folks who care about building an abolitionist future are not engaged in work to end the drug war. So many people that are concerned about abolitionist futures are not engaged in the work of how do we rapidly rehouse the nearly 100,000 people experiencing homelessness across the state of New York. Because I think we have to hold that complexity, like the future that you're building will have people that use drugs in that future. So what does it look like for those people to be able to use drugs safely and to be able to be self-determined in their drug use so that they can be free, so that we can all be free and safe? That means we're going to have to do a lot of different things. That means helping people dispel this myth about who are drug users or what are the causes, the root causes of violence and of violence in our communities, um, we're going to have to retell those stories, re-understand. And, and honestly, what we're talking about at the end of the day is about a measure of our power, about a measure of our ability to move to action, a measure of our ability to make our demands known and to, and to force our demands to be met. And by that, I mean, we're gonna need millions of people involved in the movement. I think millions of anti-capitalists, millions of anti-racists, uh, millions of people who understand um, how to engage interfaith communities, um, you know, and, and that can hold the complexities in the history and the nuances of what is American democracy, or I should say Americans ex- America's experiment with democracy. And and by that I mean you have to, you got to build a movement, and you and that means you got to build organizations, institutions that are doing that political education, that are are bringing people into the fold. But you can't bring people into the fold in thought alone. You got to bring them into the fold, honoring their self interest and their and meeting their concrete and immediate needs. And I don't mean charity. I mean requiring that the state, our government, come up off of the money that is ours and make sure that we're able to fund the kinds of initiatives that we want to fund, that people call for themselves. So that means you got to run issue-based campaigns, 
It's not just about elections. That means you've got to make sure that if we're going to build the movement that's going to have the power to usher in an abolitionist future, a liberationist future, that means you're going to have to have millions of people who are well and able to wage that movement. And that means they cannot all be dead from overdose. They cannot all be in crisis on Skid Row or in encampments across the country. They cannot be forgotten about because of the palatability of the issue at the time. So we've got to be able to hold on to that and we've got to be engaged. So to close, I will say, Yusuf, what we are working on right now in New York State, what I'm engaged in. Number one, I'm reminding everybody that in this day and age, it needs to be um, a part of the cultural norm that, hey, so where are you from mm -hmm. and where do you work? Uh-huh. And what power building organizations do you fund? Mm. What community organizations are you a member of? That needs to be a part of our everyday conversation because we got to be building this power and it's going to take time. It's going to take the maintenance of institutions. And we can talk next time about the nonprofit industrial complex and how we got to hold the complexity of what that is and what we're saying when we say those things. When you tell a bunch of poor black people who are organizing in an organization that is registered under the federal government as a 501c3 and to dismiss those organizations and their demands as um, nonprofit poverty pimping without really contending and understanding the organization is dangerous. Um, and I think um, ultimately a right-wing plot to prevent us from building the kind of power that we need. Um, so I, I guess, um, you know, I would say the fight to decriminalize all drugs, small amounts of all drugs, that's a fight that's coming in New York state. Um, I think right now we're, we're focused on the, on passing the state for consumption services act um, to make sure that people have access to overdose prevention centers. And if that sounds weird to you, then, you know, what are bars? Well, uh, you've heard it directly from Joanza James Williams. Thank you, Joanza, so much for honoring us on Afro Futures. Uh, I miss you and, and I miss working directly with you. And, and so I really appreciate you taking the time to be here today. Thank you very much. No, absolutely. It's an absolute pleasure, Yusuf. I deeply appreciate it. Thank you. You have been listening to Afro Futures, a production of WAER in Syracuse, New York. It is my first time back in the studio in a minute, and so I'm happy to be here. Uh, thank you so much again for listening. We look forward to the next episode. Mm -hmm.